I've got this picture I want. Uh, um, well, so let's see if we do. Let's see if, let's see if Laura's picture is the next picture that comes up here. <laughs> there she is. So we talked about this guy a couple of years ago. You know who this guy is? Charles, Charles Blondine, famous acrobat who in the late 1800s um, made a career of <clears throat> tight walking back and forth across the Niagara Falls. Uh, he, carried, uh, he carried a guy on his back. He carried a stove out there and cooked his breakfast and ate his breakfast sitting on a chair. Uh, um, well, this is, I'm not sure who this is because all the stuff, most of the stuff he did with his daughter was in Paris. She was younger, and, but he had something like a couple of poles stretched a uh, hundred feet tall and he would carry her back and forth in a basket. There's no pictures of that. You know, he almost got arrested for it. That was actually the end, towards the end of his career because the, apparently even in France, you can't just carry your kids back and forth 100 feet off the ground with no net. <laughs> and uh, somebody asked her once, aren't you ever worried or afraid up there when your dad does these tricks? And she says, oh, no. Uh, I know m- my papa loves me, and he would never let anything bad happen to me. Um, which is always helpful to know. Um, but anyhow, I just wanted to remind you of that because it'll, maybe it'll make sense later. So it occurred to me, all the stuff that we've been going through in, in Acts chapter 9, <laughs> studying the conversion of, of Saul is very instructive. It actually sort of lays out some stages that most people go through in the process of being converted. And I, and I wanted to, to call them call these stages real quickly to your attention today. <clears throat> the first stage, some of this we've already had, uh, the first step is what you could call a crisis confrontation. People, people don't usually just come to put their faith in Christ for no reason. Because um, if, if their life is fine and everything's going fine um, um, and there are not any tuggings by the Holy Spirit going on or, or, or no challenges that you're facing. You're just, if everything is fine, you just, no, no reason to make changes. But most people come to Christ out of some kind of challenge, some kind of, uh, of uh, disruption in the flow of their, what you might call, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, oh, let's just say disruptor. Uh, something comes in and disrupts your, the normal flow of your life. And, and suddenly you're opened or you need some kind of new intervention. Uh, for Paul, Paul was going to Damascus. He was going to arrest Christians. He was going to take them to, back to Jerusalem and probably have them executed. Everything was his. He was on top of the world. Everything was going fine. He was in the middle of making a series of really, really, as it turns out, bad choices. But he didn't know there were bad choices. How many of you... Have ever made bad choices and you didn't realize at the time that they were really bad choices and then it turned about uh, too late? Uh-oh. Uh, uh-oh, mommy, uh-oh, uh-oh. 
that's what our kids, whenever our kids, uh, whenever we heard from the bedroom, uh-oh, mommy, uh-oh, we knew that somebody had probably made a bad choice. <laughs> uh, so he was making a really bad choice, um, and it led to this crisis converse, confrontation with Jesus, which led to a revelation of understanding. <laughs> Jesus blinded him and then confronted him with the truth. Hey, hey, Saul, now that you're blind and you are helpless by the side of the road, we need to talk. And Saul was saying, like, um, I, um, who are you, Lord? Except he knew he was Lord. So I was like, he already knew who he was talking to, but he was trying to, um, he, he just knew he was busted. Who are you, Lord? And, and Jesus said, why? It's Jesus whom you are persecuting. Oh, darn. But he was in that moment of blindness and, and desperation, he discovered the truth. His, his plan uh, was creating a crisis because he was making bad choices. In the middle of that crisis, Jesus met him there and revealed himself. Real, first of all, you're blind, and now I'm telling you the truth. So, he, so you go from a situation that's a trigger to a situation that's full of revelation. Then you've got this conversion transformation. God sent a believer named Ananias to lay hands on him to receive his sight and to receive the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> By that, so Paul was helpless. Um, I think one of the things that's the most important revelation when we have our conversion experience is that we realize that we're, we're helpless, that we've always been helpless. Um, that we've just been fooling ourselves and fooling everybody for a long time to think that we were in control of anything or that we could make anything happen that was really good and lasting and transformative. So, so um, in this helpless state, God sent a dude named Ananias, lays hand, laid hand on him to receive his sight. The beginning of his transformation was to receive the Holy Spirit. I'm just telling you, we had a whole lesson on it Wednesday night, I'm just, but I'm just going to keep telling you, God's number one goal in your salvation experience is for you to be filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's, you can't do anything without that. Uh, you can't be anything without the Holy Spirit filling and controlling the life of Jesus living in you. Um, that's where it all... And, and I, in, you know, we, we have to keep reminding... I, the reason I keep reminding you of this week after week after week after week is because uh, three hours after you walk out of here, you will have forgotten it. You will have fallen back into an old pattern of figuring it out by yourself, doing it in your own street, assuming that it's all up to you without ever stopping to think, okay, Holy Spirit, how do you want this situation to be handled? We only call on the name of the Lord when we are out of ideas for how to do it ourselves. Isn't that true? Because after all, I can, if I can do it myself, I don't need God. Wrong. Did it ever occur to you that God doesn't want you to do it yourself? <laughs> I mean, two-year-olds two year love to do things themselves. Uh, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> two-year-olds love to do things themselves, and and, okay, and within certain boundaries, it's cute and sweet and precious, but not with matches, not with paint, not with a lot of other things. Uh, 
So does it ever occur to you that God doesn't necessarily want you to do it yourself just because you think you can or that you think you should? Um, without the power of the Holy Spirit filling and controlling you, without you just stopping and saying, oh, wait, wait, I don't want to listen to my own voice. La, 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 la. I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear my own voice. I want to hear the voice of the Lord. I'm just going to say, Lord, I'm going to give you an opportunity to guide me. I'm going to give you an opportunity to empower me. I'm going to give you um, an opportunity to show me things that I didn't know. Um... Be still and let me be God. Be still. We don't take enough time to be still and let God be God. We don't. We're always in panic mode. We're always on a deadline. Do you ever get tired of that? Being in panic mode and being on a deadline? You can't, it's very hard to let God be God when you're busy being God yourself because it's all up to me to, me to be the superhero here and fix everything. Stop and say, God, where are you? Lord, you just be God in my life. I'm so tired of being God in my life. I'm so tired of trying to take your place. Let me just be still for a second. Such freedom in that. Except you're afraid to take the time to be still because that's wasting time. Every time, every moment you stay, you sit still, there's a moment you could be doing something. Phone calls to return, emails to look at, whatever it is, I know, I know what that's like. Uh, this whole notion of just being still and letting God be God feels like we're wasting time. The Holy Spirit can't guide you if you're not listening to Him. He can't empower you if you're not relying on Him. So those are the first three steps. Crisis confrontation, you're, you're messing this up. You're not even sure. You're, you're not, maybe not know it, but you're messing it up. Boom, now you have a, a challenge you have to face. Revelation of understanding, you're blind and, and God reveals the truth to you. Conversion, transformation, the first step being to receive the Holy Spirit and to learn how to trust Him and walk with Him. There's a couple more steps. We're going to look at those today. Uh, number four, enthusiastic proclamation. I just love this. This is a new verse. Um, <clears throat> this is where we stopped last week. And chapter 9, this is beginning with the end of verse 19. Talking, he's still talking about Paul. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. <laughs> That's so funny. I mean, he came, like, he came to, to arrest him and kill him. Now he's just hanging out with them. They're like pitching washers and um, eating pork rinds and just, just hanging out and drinking Dr. Pepper. And <laughs> he was with the, with the disciples who were at Damascus. And when did he decide to start proclaiming Jesus? immediately 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 he started proclaiming Jesus immediately as soon as he was filled with the Holy Spirit and the, and the scales had fallen from his eyes it was like oh my goodness people have to know people have to know <clears throat> years and years and years and years and years ago Peggy and I were trained in a, a method of evangelism called the Evangelism Explosion Program. And it was started by um, James Kennedy at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Florida, Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> but the guy who basically ran the program, I can't remember his last name, his first name was Archie. Um, 
a great guy, loved Jesus, a wonderful trainer, and he would go around to conventions and train people how to use the evangelism explosion program. And Archie's testimony was this. When he got out of the Navy, okay, so uh, he was in Korea, and he was like in a, one of those foxhole situations where he said, God, I don't know you. You don't have any reason to know me, uh, but if you'll get me out of this, I'll serve you. And so he got, that, after he was shipped home, uh, the, Navy, the Navy dumped him out in San Diego, just like, boom. He got out of the Navy, he was standing on a beach. Just, I mean, he didn't know what, what he was gonna, else he was going to do with his life. And a guy came up and started telling him about Jesus. This was before the days of the Campus Crusade for Christ, or else I would have said it was a Campus Crusader, but this was a little too early for that. Um, somebody just came up and started telling me about Jesus. And he remembered his prayer, and he recognized that this was God reaching out to him. So he accepted Jesus right there on the beach. And then he looked at this guy and said, Okay, what do I do now? And the guy handed him like five different, five, again, I would say there were four special law books, but it was too early, but five different tracts that explained the gospel. And this man said, okay, I want you to find five people today. Give each one of them this tract, uh, this tract, tell them about Jesus and ask them if they want to accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior. I will meet you back here tomorrow. So he came back the next day. He met five, he met five people. He gave them the tracks. They all accepted Jesus. He came back the next day, met, the, met his new friend. and said, okay, I did that. What do I do now? The man gave him a bunch more tracks. said, I'll meet you back here tomorrow. Archie said it was like two weeks before he realized that not every Christian in the whole wide world did this every day. <laughs> Jesus had touched his life. All he wanted to do was tell people about Jesus. He couldn't imagine why people wouldn't want to tell people about Jesus. It was two weeks before he figured out that the whole church didn't do this all the time. <clears throat> it was great, a great motivator of people to share the gospel. Paul immediately began to proclaim Jesus because why wouldn't he? Why aren't we? What else do you think you're here for? Immediately he began to proclaim Jesus <clears throat> saying he is the son of God and all those po people who were hearing him were going like, wait, what? Like, I, I, don't, I don't get this. I don't understand this. What? Isn't this the guy who came from Jerusalem? He destroyed uh, all the people who called on the name of Jesus in, and now he's come here. He came here to arrest more people and take them. I don't understand what's happened. I don't understand. I, this, this, this does not compute. Error, error. Um, danger, Will Robinson. Um, what's, what's happening? I don't understand. Uh, Paul just kept on. He just kept on increasing in strength. <clears throat> Where does the strength come from? 
Holy Spirit. It wasn't like, oh, he, he had some kind of disease and, and that made him blind and now he just had to rest up and get his strength back. No, he was getting new strength from the power of the Holy Spirit. And he, the more, I'm not going to say that the Holy Spirit is a muscle, but I'm going to say the more that you walk in reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit, the more you understand what it's like to live surrendered to the grace of God. And it just he continued to increase in strength and he was confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. They couldn't understand. They thought, the Jews thought, Paul's going to come and he's going to stamp out all these vermin Christians. But no, wait, no. Now he's preaching Jesus. Uh, and he's kind of <coughs> proving to them that Jesus is the Christ. All right. How did Paul... This isn't in there, so you have to figure this out. Kind of infer some things. How did Paul prove to them that Jesus was the Christ? Changed life? Signs and wonders. That's... so, So remember years later in Corinth when Paul said... I don't want to win arguments with you people. I don't want to impress you with how fancy a talker I am. I just want you uh, have put your, I want you to see uh, the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power because I, want, I don't want your faith to rest on the wisdom of men. I want your faith to rest in the power of God. So even though it doesn't say here that he started moving in miracles and signs and wonders, <clears throat> obviously the changed life got people's attention, but... When people came to check it out, like, check it out, man, this guy's completely changed. Paul, what, what, what made the change? Paul did not say, well, you know, I was just reading in the book of Isaiah. And I saw in chapter 51 about all the prophecies about how, how the Messiah was going to suffer. And then it suddenly just, it just came to me. Jesus must have been the Messiah all the time no <laughs> Jesus came and knocked me off my heart I was blind then I wasn't blind I heard a voice then I wasn't blind and I got filled with the Holy Spirit and my life is just totally turned around nobody could do this but God nobody could do this but to me but by the power of God and there's no argument about a guy who first of all came to kill you then decided to save you, then was blind, then wasn't blind, and now lame people are walking around. This is how you will know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins in the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. So, enthusiastic proclamation. Woohoo! Just can't, can't shut up can't stop talking about what they've experienced by the power of God. So that brings us to number five, complete surrender. So when many days had elapsed, so this went on for a while, it went on so long that the Jewish leadership in Damascus decided they had to do something about it. Had to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. But these Jews were watching the gates day and night so that they could catch him 
if he tried to sneak out and put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. So, uh, how's, how's the ministry working out for you, Paul? Uh, pretty good. I got lowered in a basket. You know, you really know that you have, <clears throat> that you have taken a step forward in your faith when you are found dangling by a rope from a wall in a basket at night. Um, <clears throat> that's, that's when we find out whether, whether you're really serious about this or not. That's when, that's when God knows uh, how much are you willing to trust me or not. You know, like the, with Mr. Blondine, he was like, you're really going to trust me? Get on my... Blondine used to say, he would get a crowd out on the, like the edge of Niagara Falls. And he would yell, I guess, because the falls are loud. And so his voice would end up sounding like mine. And, but he would say, how many of you believe I can walk back and forth across this rope across Niagara Falls. Oh, yes, Mr. Blondine. Uh, uh, we've, we've, we've heard of you. You're famous. We've seen pictures of you do this. Yes. How many of you think I could take a wheelbarrow with me across this, on this rope? Yes, yes, Mr. Blondine. We, we're, we're totally convinced. We've heard that you can do this. We've actually seen you do it with other people. Yes. How many of you think I could put a person in this wheelbarrow? Yes, yes. That's amazing. It's one of the best tricks I've ever seen. Uh, who would like to be the first one to get into my barrel? Crickets. 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 Um, nobody ever really wanted to volunteer to get into the wheelbarrow except his daughter. Uh, and some people that were kind of were blackmailed into doing it. Uh, <clears throat> there's some stories about how he put, you know, well-known civic leaders or, or businessmen on the spot where he kind of uh, dared them to do it. But nobody, it wasn't like he was selling trips across Niagara Falls for 50 cents a ticket and people were just lining up to buy into that. Um... It takes a commitment to get into a wheelbarrow and go across Niagara Falls. It takes a commitment to say, Jesus, I'm, I'm trusting you even if you dangle me over a wall in a basket in the middle of the night to try to get away from people who are killing me. I'm, I am all in. You're never actually all in with Jesus until you are in a basket. So I'm just, I'm just going to ask you this. This is kind of a measure of your spiritual maturity. Are you a basket case yet? Um, you kind of know what I mean, I think. Uh, you got a challenge, a problem, an obstacle, a dream that's beyond your control. You don't know what to do about it. You've maybe tried to do something about it. Um, and maybe you thought you had it figured out, but guess what? You didn't. There's just something going on that's eating your lunch. You're out of ideas and you're low on resources and you're afraid of failure or rejection or like the death of a vision because we all have hopes. Incidentally, sometimes, you know what? It's not, like, it's not always that your vision is wrong. It's not always that your dream is wrong. 
It's just that God sometimes lets it die so that he can resurrect it better and more powerful and so that you will know it was him. And so sometimes you're there in this situation and you don't have any idea what to do, but doing nothing is not an option. Okay. And there's a difference between something that's urgent and important. And we spend, we spend most of our time, we waste most of our time doing things that are urgent instead of things that are important because sometimes things that are important um, that could be life-changing, they're not just in your face screaming at you. Uh, there are other things that are in your face screaming at you. And so you... You give in to those things and you think, well, I'll do the important thing tomorrow. Um, that can wait for a couple of weeks. Um, and you don't, we don't realize what a price we end up paying for that. Um, you, you know, most of the things, not all things, most of the things that are urgent, that are that pressed down on us, are on, they only feel urgent because it's something that somebody else puts on us. Somebody else has a problem and they want you to fix it. And so they're feeling urgent about it. So we let them make their problem our problem. And it crowds out the things that are really most important. But occasionally, urgent and important intersect. A really, really, really important thing that you should have done a long time ago, it now can't wait any longer. And doing nothing is not an option, but you don't know what to do. There aren't any good options where... It doesn't seem to be that there, there, there are no good options where everybody gets to live happily ever after and we all go out to Dairy Queen and have a little chocolate-dipped cone in a cup afterwards. It just, it's hard and it's scary and you don't want to do it. You don't want to do it, but, you don't, but doing nothing is not an option anymore. Doing nothing is not an option and so the only choice is to get in God's basket. Just get in God's basket. Choose something. Do it. Trust Him that it's the closest to the right thing that you can think of. And surrender control. Because you are going to be dangling in midair. You have to trust Him. I love this. Boy, the God just popped this into my head. Trust Him in a bigger bolder, more desperate way than you ever have before. Trust Him in a bigger, bolder, more desperate way than you ever have before, even if you end up like this. <clears throat> um, this guy doesn't even have a basket. Can you notice? Uh, He's just, he's got a harness. This was a, a rescue off the coast of England several years ago. I just found it on the internet. They scooped a guy up out of the water. Yeah, that's the wave to Prince William. Uh, um, and sometimes you're just completely helpless and you're trusting in God's helicopter and uh, Jesus says the guy who's coming to rescue you and you are 
dangling by this little skinny rope, whisking through the air at 50 miles an hour. Uh, and you're not, you can't drive the helicopter? You are, you are strapped into this thing and you're just... Somebody else is in control. God's... At that point, that's when you, when you know that you're a basket case and you still know it's going to be okay. I, honestly, I, I think that we avoid opportunities to get into God's basket because we're still at the last minute thinking we can fix this some other way. I don't think so. I don't think so. Sometimes I think God wants us in the basket until you've discovered that you we, we actually make ourselves into a worse basket case by not getting in the basket uh, God wants you to be in the basket and if you're tired of being a basket case maybe you just want to get in the basket and see what God does with that because um, it couldn't, honestly couldn't be any worse could it than going through what it, what it is that you're going through right now to just trust Jesus just trust Jesus get in the basket um, I'm sure Paul was hoping this was going to work out but when somebody comes to you and says, uh, Paul, we've got this worked out. It's, uh, here's our plan. We're going to put you in a basket. We're going to let you over a wall. They're trying to kill you, Paul. They're watching the gates. We think we can beat, uh, we can beat the murderers uh, who are trying to kill you by lowering you over a wall in a basket. And, and probably Paul's initial reaction was, that's the best you can come up with. Are you, sh- are you sure? That's it? That's it? This is Damascus, one of the most sophisticated cities in the whole, this whole part of the world. The best you can come up with is hanging me over a wall in a basket. Sorry, Paul. They'll never see it coming. You know, we think this could work. Um, we just need Skinny and Lenny to make sure they don't drop the rope. That's all, but... Uh, <laughs> so, so you get in the basket. Sometimes you, it's a, it doesn't look like a great plan, but you don't have any other plan. So you get in the basket and you trust God. So, I don't know where you are today. I don't know how, if this makes any sense to you at all. Um, but you have to remember: don't ever forget. You're deeply loved by God. You're fully accepted by God. You are completely and permanently forgiven by God. You are lavishly blessed by God. You are eternally, perfectly embraced by God as his child who brings him unspeakable joy. And if he wants you in a basket, it's going to be okay. He's holding the rope. He's there to catch you. It's going to be okay. Let's pray. So, Lord, there's some aspects of this sermon that we just hate. We, we don't like being clay. We don't like being dirt and water. We don't like being helpless. We don't like the urgent screaming at us. We don't know how to get the important things done. We feel like we've done the best we can. We don't like feeling guilty for not being good enough.
We're so tired. We just want to rest and we just want to have peace and we don't want to be in a stupid basket. But Jesus, I pray that at the right time, in the right way, when it's clear the only option is to get in the basket and trust you, that we will at least have the same trust that Mr. Blondine's daughter had to say, I'm not afraid. I know my papa will take care of me. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.